As an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their residents, and their successes or failures. But there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by John Cartwright, game consultant at gameconsulting.com.au. So join us as we explore his journey. So today I'm joined by John. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Paul? Very, very well. It's you know, for me first day back at work for for another school term. So that's you know, there's a, there's an inherent layer of um, exhaustion that comes with that. But yeah, I can believe it. Been dealing with sick family and sick kids the last few days, so this is nothing in comparison. Oh, sweet release. You keeping well? Yeah. Yes, thanks. Um, it's getting a bit colder up here in Brisbane, but yeah, um, all good. Thanks. I'm in sunny Melbourne, so it's always cold here. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so this is Dev Diary, so we talk to developers from throughout the industry. They share their stories, their experiences, and the journey that has led to this current point in juncture. But John, and we were discussing this before we started recording, I was doing all my research for you, and I was astounded by some of the really awesome things, really fascinating <laughs> things that I found, and we're going to discuss all those in a little bit of detail shortly. But before we get to your actual experience in the industry, I wanted to rewind a bit further to some of your first gaming experiences. Do you recall what the first game was that you ever played or the f- some of the first games that you ever played? Sure. I mean, I remember uh, as a family, uh, my dad bought uh, you know, the old TV game you connected that had the little paddles with the rotating oh, yeah. controllers yep. on. So it wasn't Pong. It was like a knockoff Pong, you know, by Binatone or somebody. And, you know, it had tennis and squash and football and they were all essentially the same thing, really, with slightly different layouts. So, I mean, that was probably one of the first games I played. Um, and then I remember my dad was, like, he used to use computers in his work at the hospital. And I went into the lab one time to see him and, you know, they're sort of trying to keep a child busy whilst they're working. And yeah. one of the old uh, Commodore PET computers they had there, which was this green screen monitor with a big chunky keyboard attached, and they had Duck Hunt on it. And it, it didn't oh, have great nice. graphics. It, it was very, you know, like, uh, very character blocky graphics. But, I mean, I, I was absolutely transfixed by it. So, you know, always kind of um, was into games. And, you know, if we were going away somewhere, you know, trying to find an arcade and lose my 10 pence playing something badly, you know. Remember playing Donkey Kong in the arcade. So, you know, there's a bit of a vintage going on. Oh, yeah, there's there's a, there's a theme there. But, of course, your your tastes and uh, interests, you know, were clearly peaked at that point. And what sort of, were there any franchises, genres, particular titles that you took a fancy to as you as you continue to explore games over the years? Oh, look, no. I mean, when I was first playing games as a kid, there weren't really sequels, to be honest. It's like the games, because they were all like one-offs, really. I think it was before the industry got super commercialised and into the whole annualised sequel thing. So there was a lot of individual games that you'd play. um, And I remember actually, you know, growing up playing on home computers uh, in the UK, uh, it was when sort of arcade conversions were just coming in. And so, you know, you'd have something like... I remember... You know, I bought my Atari ST um, and I got Marble Madness with it. And it was like, oh yeah. my God, it's like an arcade machine in my house on my television. And of course it isn't, but it was such a, a leap up. And, and I think, you know, you kind of saw um, 
if it was in the arcade, it was a proper game rather than something you'd never heard of. And I think it's when you sort of first start that becoming aware thing. of... Yeah, you start becoming aware of brands, you know, and the power of the brand. You know, that if Marble Madness had been called something else, it would have been seen as a knockoff on home computer. Whereas when it was the official thing, it was like, oh, wow. And it was exciting. Yeah. And you can just start to see the cog starting to turn there behind the scenes with all the various companies at the time. Like, oh, hang on. These, these names have power. We can... We can start to do something with this. We can leverage this. And that's where eventually the sequels do start to come into play. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, there was a big um, you know, proliferation of like movie and TV licensed games um, on home computers, which were of very, very variable quality. Let's let's put it that way. But um, but they were there and they well, sold I mean, everyone they, they sold back to E.T. Oh, I know. Everyone yeah, comes let, back to E.T. at some let, point. Yeah, so. God. No, but all the sort of, you know, um, just, you know, sort of games of like stuff... You know, even weird back catalogue. I seem to remember there was like a Great Escape game. Obviously, many, many yep. years after the Great Escape was a movie of any note. But, you know, Die Hard and, you know, all sorts of things. So, yeah, there was a real move. I think it's when games sort of became more of a business and started getting taken maybe a little bit more seriously. And, I mean, things have continued to evolve from there. Were there any, as you really started to wade into the industry, and, of course, I mean, we're about to comb through an incredible amount, but were there any, was there some sort of association with particular games or or franchises as the industry evolved that way? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I kind of... I did always enjoy the licensed stuff. I know a lot of people really kind of look down on it. And, you know, as you know, I've spent quite a lot of my career working with licensed products one way or another with games. Yeah. And I actually kind of enjoyed them. Um, there was something about them. I think because, you know, you knew there was going to, you were going to find an audience for them. Um, and because I'm not really from a design background, so, like, coming in and, and you're working with, you know, whether it's SpongeBob SquarePants or, or whatever, it's like, well, there's, there's something that, it's a known quantity, you know, there's a law to it, there's a brand Bible, there's all the stuff that you can and can't do. Um, and so you kind of know what your audience is going to be. And it's, um, I don't know, I always found it fun to, to, to make games for them. Is it easier in a sense because, and I guess, again, we are skipping ahead a little bit. We'll be definitely coming back to SpongeBob a bit later on. Sure. But uh, with working in some sort of, li- uh, the restrictions of some sort of license, those boundaries make it easier in some sense because there's kind of a defined, I guess, rule set based on the IP itself. Um, it's it's a real mix. I think if you if you don't treat the brand, and I think a lot of us when we started working with brands didn't treat them with the respect they deserved. You know, you sort of there going, oh, it's just SpongeBob or it's just Action Man or whatever the license was, yeah. and you're like, but we want to do this with it, and you don't realise that the game is probably the smallest part of the brand's life, and you know, there's there's all these other licenses that are making, you know. Uh, Duna covers and pen and pencil sets and this, that and the other and there are all these rules they've got to set to and it's actually you know, it's it's a thing that's very very important to the brand holder so I think to begin with when we were all like, no but we want to do this because it's right for a game and it's like no no no, you don't understand, it's like Spongebob or whatever the, the brand would be it's like, you can't do that with our crown jewels Yeah. And and then when you start, you figure out, okay so working within those constraints I think actually becomes a real um, I mean I found it enjoyable I found it could be quite challenging as well but I do think that you know I look back a lot at the, the old 8 and 16-bit arcade games and sort of think well there were so many hardware constraints it made for really creative solutions and really creative games and I think to an extent it's it's the same with brands when you're like well we've got to get around this um, you know and, and you know if you want to talk about that later I don't want to sort of jump too far ahead but I mean there were some yeah. things with Warner Brothers that were kind of interesting where 
well, we can't do this, but we can do this. And, you know, it, it was it just interesting discussions around that. It's it's those various doors that are opening and closing and you know, sliding doors, I guess, in a lot of ways and what pathways you can and can't take. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll, we'll start to wade into the career, I guess, at the, the beginning here. Uh, as I was doing my reading, I'm, I've learned a lot about some of your work with Dragon 32 titles back in the day. Yes. Well, I mean, that was... That's so the starting that, point? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was when I... Uh, so that was our first home computer. My dad bought that um, for the family. It was in the home computer boom. So, I mean, I don't know... I'm not sure how much you made it out here. I know Melbourne House did some software for it, so it must have to some extent. But um, but it was a Welsh home computer. Yeah. Um, and it was like looking at it now, and it's this large beige box with a black keyboard. Um, so that's the one that we ended up getting. And, and part of that was like my dad... He wanted to get a computer for the family, um, but he wanted one with a proper keyboard. So that ruled out the Spectrum that had all the good games because it had the little rubber keyboard. Um, and that's that's what we got. And so I wanted to teach, I played games on it, obviously. Um, and I taught myself how to program on it, um, taught myself how to make games in basic, and then uh, taught myself how to write assembly language and started making games. And, you know, it's back in the day when you, you do it all yourself. You know, you do the coding, you do the graphics, you do whatever terrible sound went into it design it um, the whole kit and caboodle and, and you know it's all on cassette tape as well so you know all your progress can be ruined by a jammed cassette um, but yeah, uh, yeah. It, was, it was a lot of fun and you know uh, I, I, it sort of it really led me down the path of, of wanting to pursue sort of programming and stuff as a career and particularly games programming so was it when you when you were, I mean you mentioned there was a bit of you know consumption but also then starting to get into some of the assembly language and everything else behind it we did you at this point already know that you know exploring games and what I can and can't do with them was something you wanted to pursue or, it, or did it actually take a while of you purely consuming before you then realized hey I I want to actually get involved in this somehow and maybe I can do it myself no I mean I think I always wanted to because it's like I mean when you're a kid that sounds like a fun job right yeah um, and it still kind of does but you know it was it seemed uh, it seemed impossible back then you know because I mean we're looking quite a few years ago. Um, and it certainly wasn't anything, you know, there were no courses and it was kind of looked down on really as it was, it was seen as a fad, I guess, some yeah. computer games. And, and certainly my parents were like, well, look, you know, it's great that you're interested in that, but you know, uh, you should go to university and, you know, make sure Have that something you get else. a, yeah, you've got a sort of a backup and I don't think they ever thought anything would come of it. Um, and so, you know, 30 odd years later, well, um, I showed you mum and dad. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's a good feeling though, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's, um, you know, all, all sorts of coincidences, you know, to make it happen. But um, yeah, absolutely. It's it's weird sort of thinking of doing anything else now. And so this was the, you and a friend of yours, Keith Stewart, that were kind of working together on this stuff or from, from the get-go or did you kind of come together a little bit down the road there in that respect? Oh, it was a bit further down the road. I mean, I was doing stuff on my own for years and we were at school together. We were good mates. Um, and I, I, it's like he was... Um, his family had spent a bit more money. He had a Commodore sixty four, so you know we, we were on different planes gaming. Hey, big spender! Right? I know, right? Um, and I don't think he he quite believed that I'd written games. And it's like, I don't know, come over, I'll show you. And, and he was, oh, okay. Um, and so then, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I can't claim that it kickstarted his career in games, but in the end, you know, he ended up coming and working in games. You know, he's been a games journalist for years, and he's a successful novelist now. But yeah, I mean, we worked together on a bunch of things and had a lot of fun. And, you know, when he moved, um, when his family moved away, they moved uh, further to, towards London. 
um, I was living in the northwest, um, but we would still meet up down in London for like the sort of computer shows back in the day. So there'd be the Atari yeah. ST show down at Earl's Court or something, and you know we'd catch up there. So yeah, yeah, good times. And that continued to evolve into what eventually became after after a few years, kind of messing around, uh, messing around together there in that space. Eventually evolved and became Big Red Software. Well, I went to work for Big Red Software. Yeah, well, I mean, I was I sort of sold games on my own. Um, sort of sold games through publishers on the Dragon 32 on cassette tape uh, for the glamour that that was. You know, went out and did all the sort of regional computer shows, showing them off. Um, so yeah. I made a bit, I've made a bit of money with that, um, which was, you know, as a kid, it was great. Um, you know, I didn't... I've never had a Ferrari or anything. There's nothing, you know... There's no millionaire story, unfortunately, but... It's not um, too late. Never uh, well, will I know, It's not too I know. late. Uh, but, you know, I, I did I did okay out of it and, you know, managed to buy myself newer computers and, you know, colour monitors and, you know, various luxurious items at the time. Um, and then I went to university, obviously, for three years and I kind of stopped. I was still interested in programming and stuff, but I didn't really make any games. Um, yep. And then it was in the... Uh, I was doing computer science at university and obviously I was interested in games and they were, you know, teaching us all this stuff like Prologue and, and Lisp. You know, all the kind of software engineering stuff. And, you know, we got to do a bit of assembler and I was all over that because that was kind of my favourite. That was in your wheelhouse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, went to university and in the final year, uh, the vacation before I started my final year, I actually got a a summer job uh, working at a uh, local developer called Big Red Software. Um, It was, so my dad worked with um, someone and her boyfriend ran this company. And I kind of talked my way into a summer job very so, nice. yeah, so I, I sort of went and I, uh, you know, it was like, oh, well, you know, have you ever programmed the Spectrum and the Amstrad? And I'm like, no, but I mean, they're all pretty much the same, aren't they? It's all the assembly language. Uh, and so I bluffed my way in and taught myself uh, kind of on the job, really. So I, I, I sort of went into the, the office and there was another coder, um, Fred, and an artist, Pete. So I kind of doubled the programming staff. Um, and over the course of six weeks, so I was doing, we had a contract to do, there was quite a, a well-known um educational bit of software called fun school and we had the contract to do that that year on spectrum amstrad and so i was working on that um and then we finished that or it got moved or something um and then i wrote um uh, there was a, a series of games in the uk the the dizzy games written by the yep. oliver twins and so in my my vacation before my final year i, I wrote uh, a dizzy game so there was kind of an engine of sorts. Um, there was a method to it. Um, so it wasn't like writing it from nothing. But yeah, so in, I don't know how many weeks, four or five weeks, probably less, um, wrote that on the Spectrum and the Amstrad. It was a game basically to fill um, to fill a box set for Christmas. So Code Yeah, there Ma- was a five, five game thing, yeah. That's right. So every Christmas, I think Codemasters would put out these five game packs um, and they were missing a dizzy one. So it was like, oh look, you know, can you just sort out something half a dozen just rooms is fine together, it's just right? it's just you know like it's just to pan out the box so that sales have got something to sell at christmas and it's like okay so me and pete ranson the the artist there um put together this this game dizzy prince of the oak folk and you know it was all uh, marketed as like oh it's super rare it's only in this box set you know it's all the, the marketing spin really marketing, yeah um and it went really well people liked it um, and eventually they actually they released it on its own which was never really the plan um, and it actually bizarrely went to number one in the UK charts which was kind of wild um, and it was all this initially just cobbled together sort of idea to pad out a box set and look what happened yeah, pretty much yeah yeah. so I mean I went back to university did my final year and then basically finished my last exam and uh, got on the train from university and went down to work sort of full time um, for, for Big Red Software 
Was it a panicked period there, though, when you've, as you said, to use your phrasing, you, you bluffed your way in initially with the interview there, and then all of a yep. sudden you, you're thrown you're thrown in. Mm. Were you worried, oh, my God, I'm going to get exposed here? Like, <laughs> I've talked my way into a situation. I don't know if I can get myself out of it now. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, but it, it worked out. Uh, I, would, I, I wouldn't recommend it, but yeah, it's, it's um, and it's funny because I've not talked about the, the bluffing in bit for years, but it's like, yeah, I absolutely bluffed my way in. Um, and for whatever reason, Paul was like, eh, you know, we'll give him a go or was, I don't know, maybe he was fooled, but it, I mean, it did work out and I ended up doing some sort of decent work and yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe you saw that and just, no, but there's a nugget of something here that we can still work with. And I, I think as well, I, you know, I was, I was cheap. I was 20. So, you know. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the harm? Exactly. So, I mean, we mentioned, so obviously there was Dizzy, but you know, we can list Seymour. There's Big Red Racing. Mm-hmm. There's Tank Commander in that period as well. Like, there's there's some really cool titles that you were working on in part of that period, and we haven't even delved into the uh, the Game Genie side of things yet. No, and, and one of the things um, I was thinking about when I knew we were going to talk was that um, actually at the time of um, uh, of Tank Commander, we, we, we did a VR version of it as well. So, you know, back in, in those days, and we're talking about um, like VGA DOS days, you know, sort of 386, yeah. 486 maybe. So there were no 3D graphics cards really, or they were just starting to come in. But we were doing, we got contracted, there was there was a, a couple of headset makers. There was Cybermax, Victimax did the, their headsets, and then there was Virtual IO. And um, it's like, if you think, you know, people complain about the sort of PlayStation VR and the, the fact there are cables, it's like, you don't know, you know anything. nothing. <laughs> oh, completely, my God. Um, I think I've I think I've had the, I think I've tried one of, uh, I can't remember, sorry, all the different models that you rattled off there, but I think there's one of them that I tried out. It was, I think, some kind of retro gaming exhibit there, and they had mm. some of them that you actually tried out, and I popped it on, and oh, yeah, you, you just can't complain about it. Sure, there's some little deficiencies yeah. in PSVR compared to the, uh, to the others, but just oh, remember how far we've come, people. Absolutely. I mean, it was another world. I mean, there were, it was essentially, it was very, very front heavy. So you really, you got a very sore neck uh, having the thing on and developing with it was not great fun either. Um, but they were actually with the Victimax Cybermax headset. It was, it was like you had these little binocular lenses on your eyes and they were that yeah. close. Like people who had contacts would report that they would take the headset off and it would remove the contact lenses from their eyes oh. and leave them on the, uh, yeah, on the, on the headset. On so the lenses, was, right. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that was kind of that felt kind of fun to do because it was very, um, you know, it felt like you were kind of at the cutting edge. I mean, it looked, you know, you're talking three twenty two forty resolution, so you know, absolutely nothing. But at the time, it felt, you know, quite cutting wild. Edge, yeah, and especially because you know, you'd look around and the, you know, the scene would go with you, and you're like, wow, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm in another world. Like it's absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I guess everyone had that again in the kind of 2015, 16 period when we started to see PSVR and Oculus and all them do that. But yeah, it was years and years before that we first saw the, like those first baby steps. So absolutely, it's pretty cool to be a part of that. Oh yeah, it was. It was fun. It was fun. I'm, I'm glad I don't have to wear a headset that heavy anymore. Well, yeah, <laughs> the the next train is. It's nice not to have it, I suppose. Yeah. So I mentioned Game Genie. Now, that's a really yes. big part of that chapter there, uh, doing Game, Game Genie work with Sega platforms yeah. uh, and some really cool stories that I read about that period there, things involving the Adams Family, uh, dogs and fire hydrants and several, yeah. several yeah. other yeah. really cool stories there. But yeah. uh, I guess there's possibly part of the audience here who's not even necessarily familiar with uh, with Game Genie. So it's probably important that we even delve into kind of the genesis of that idea. 
sure. this being a I, I, I see what you did there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so I mean, the, you know, Codemasters um, basically had this idea uh, of well, you know, what if you had a game uh, and you could like there were dials on it, you know, you could uh, you know change the amount of the difficulty or the amount of lives or whatever it was. Um, and that actually evolved into, well, how about there's a cartridge that sits in the way? Uh, and that's what it ended up being, that it sat in between the console and your cartridge. And you could put in these kind of cheat codes, really, so you could get extra lives or, you know, skip levels or be invincible or whatever it was. Um, and there was some pretty clever stuff in there uh, on the hardware side. Um, so they'd already done it for the, for the NES or the NES, if you prefer. Um, and we were, so at Big Red Software, we kind of got involved... Uh, because they wanted to do it for the Game Boy, the original Game Boy. And so the hardware folks at Codemasters, so Rich Applin and others, were building the sort of hardware um, on it. And we at Big Red got the contract to to basically find codes, to find cheat codes, to find... Uh, they call it a game enhancer, I think, rather than a yeah. cheat cartridge. Um, again, the fantastic... There's a stigma attached to cheat. They, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, we, we were sort of you know contracted to find codes for all of the games that existed so i think on the day that we signed the contract as big red software to do that code finding i think there were 103 games or something available for the game boy uh, in the uk that's not a small task straight out the gate that's yeah and and you know we had to have i think it was a minimum of three codes like that worked and were sensible um for every game so basically i mean i was writing spectrum games uh probably a seymour spectrum game uh, from 9 to 5 in the morning and then from 5 to about 11 I was in the office code finding on the Game Boy um, but the thing is it's like I was 21 uh, you know just left all the, the energy in the world absolutely and it was you know it was the excited to be in the industry and it felt really kind of cool uh, and especially it felt a little bit rebellious because we had to keep notes for the lawyers because it's like well Codemasters were like we're never going to get sued so here are the rules about what you can do and what you have to write down and how much you're allowed to write down so if it goes to court we can prove um, you know how, how it's been done and prove that it's legal so yeah so I mean we'd had the you know we had these kind of modified Game Boys and they were hooked up to these logic analyzers um, and so if I was trying to find out you know lives I'd be you know I'd, I'd set a trap on the, on the logic analyzer for like when there was written like say three if you had started out with three yeah. lives and I'd go okay right I'll try and I know where that is in the code and I'd come up with this you know essentially a bit of code to insert that would change the three to say a five and if it did, it's like, great, I found it. Um, and, you know, we'd have a code for, like, start with five lives. Um, or, you know, we'd find, if once I found where it was, uh, you know, you could go, well, we want to find out when that decrements, when it, when you lose a life, and then you can kind of null that out so that you don't lose a life. So then you'd and have invincibility and, and so on. So there, there was a lot of that. Some of it was fairly simple. Some of it was a bit um, harder, you know, some of the level skip stuff. And then, you know, with some of them, we were just really, really struggling to find anything. Um, and that kind of leads to the um, the code more that, outlandish. That, yes, yes. So I mean, one of them, you know, was the uh, dogs turn into fire hydrants code. Uh, that you know, basically, we were struggling with this Mickey Mouse game, um, and we just couldn't find anything. Uh, we probably had lives or something, and we were like, oh. And you know, you sort of just putting in values, and and we somehow found that, like, you know, if you if we, we'd made a code that if every time you jumped, the dogs on the screen would turn into fire hydrants, and we're like. Yep, sounds good to me. <laughs> so we wrote it up and like Codemasters QA'd them all. And I think we, we possibly had a little bit of discussion about, really? Um, and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and in the end, it, it kind of became this kind of uh, code word in the studio for something that was a bit rubbish, was like, dogs turn into fire hydrants? Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, so I mean, that was that was it was really it was very very interesting to do because obviously it was very low level, so it was all assembler, so that really interested me. Um, and then from that, it kind of led to us doing we you know we did all the code finding for and we did do all 103 games uh, for the for the game game genie for for sort of Game Boy. Um, and then it led to us getting contract. We were doing like the kind of the software, the firmware for the uh, the Genesis Mega Drive Game Genie, and then uh, which Fred, one of the other programmers in the office, did. He did the Super Nintendo one too. Um, and then I did the um, so I did the uh, the Game Gear one and the Master System yep. one, which were essentially the same system. So and that was kind of fun as well, sort of uh, doing that. Um, and with the, I don't think the Master System one ever got released because it was kind of on the wane at the time. But the Game Gear was still doing okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and with the the Game Gear one, um, I was working with uh, one of the, the sort of hardware engineers, Rich Applin, who who sort of designed all the hardware. Um, and we were talking about how, like in the ads uh, on TV in, in, the, in the US, they had this gravelly, you know, game genie, you know, kind of movie oh, yeah, voiceover think, yeah. kind of voice. Um, and we're like, well, we tried to record it from the advert and it was just all crackle. Um, and so in the end, um, we thought, well, we'll just try and record something. So we were in the, in the studio and, you know, probably using an Amiga to, to sort of grab audio. And we all had a go at, you know, doing game genie, you know, in the kind of most butch manliest stereotypical voiceover guy oh yeah um, way that we could and it all sounded dreadful um and we're like but it would be so cool um and then i don't know why i can't remember why but i um put on a very bad geordie accent so the northeast of england um and i actually just recorded well hey man it's game genie um and that actually they, they stripped they, stri- they stripped off the way i man because um, we had the, the cartridge couldn't be too big. That there's literally oh, yeah, okay. bit, yeah, also a little bit dodgy. Yeah. Um, and that actually ended up being on the Game Gear one. So if anybody ever gets one of those and powers it on, it is actually my voice putting on a terrible Geordie accent, going Game Genie. Um, <laughs> I know it's oh. no, I, I like that. And yeah, anyone who anyone who's got it, let us know. Yeah, certainly I don't have one. That's... You you did mention you know, making notes for any legal stuff that popped up. Yeah. How many cases do you recall? Were there many that you had to contend with in the end? So, no, it was more the concern that um, Nintendo or Sega would uh, sue us for illegally reverse engineering. Yeah. And so, obviously, there's a lot of... Uh, kind of legal ways that you can do stuff and what they uh, and so what sort of Codemasters management and lawyers I guess wanted us to do was to be adhere to a set of rules so um, with a logic analyzer it would show me I mean the Game Boy was kind of a Z80 chip not quite but close enough Um, and so I ended up having to uh, and Fred who was working on it as well we we had these logic analyzers and we were sight reading the hex code and disassembling it in our head rather than writing it down because if we write down too much, like however many lines of code, that was counted as a legal no-no, apparently. So oh, right. Like, okay. But then if we were, we were okay writing down addresses, it's like, it's like, oh, I think the live's address is at this, and I could write it down, and then I could check check that. That was all right, as long as I kind of had notes around what I was doing it for. But we couldn't just have like pages and pages of like hex disassembly. So it was it was an interesting thing to do, and and I know. And identifying um, where the line is, I guess. Yeah. What's acceptable versus what's not. Yeah. Um, and especially because, you know, we were early 20s, so we are like, yeah, whatever. Um, but it, it kind of came back. There was a lot of that involved in, you know, just basically because Codemasters were an unlicensed developer on these consoles. Um, so Nintendo didn't get, uh, grant them a license. They manufactured their own 
cartridges that, that worked. Yeah. Um, and obviously, I don't think Nintendo were particularly pleased about that. And then they did the same for Sega cartridges as well. Um, and in the end, Sega, I think, came around and went, okay, well, we, we can't touch you. Or, you know, they, I don't know if they came to an agreement that I never heard about, but it essentially, Codemasters ended up producing their own Sega cartridges. And, and what happened then was, uh, this was back in the day when, uh, you know, Sega or Nintendo would only allow a publisher two or three games a year. Yeah, there was that cap. There was a real limit on it. You know, and there was the whole Nintendo seal of quality and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, and so there were actually more games being developed than could be published. So what happened, particularly on the Sega side, is that other publishers would then come to Codemasters and go, hey, we've got this game. Can you publish it? So we ended up seeing some stuff from all sorts of publishers that, like, Sega, for whatever reason, had rejected. Um, I mean, I remember quite clearly at one point we got a... Uh, it was an A-team game think on the sega game gear and i think oh, right, okay. i think sega had gone no this is a bit of an old license and denied them um, and i don't remember if cody's published it but i remember us booting it up and looking at it and going oh, okay you know so yeah oh, super 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 interesting time you know again it felt really really pioneering because it was like the little company against uh you know the big boys the big corporates yeah yeah i mean obviously it's, it's you know with sort of codemasters being bought by ea just recently it's yeah uh, i think it's quite a different company now oh for sure i mean I don't want to slander EA too much, but that changes things for sure. Uh, yes, I think I think we could say so. <laughs> uh, but you also went on to become the studio head there. So at a time where uh, Big Red was acquired by Artis, yeah, yeah, you became studio head. So that would have been a, I mean, you, you've gone from in a very short space of time from just kind of, I guess, messing around at home with uh, you know assembly code and build, slowly building your own games to some game genie work, a little bit of developing yeah, your own titles, yeah. and all of a sudden studio head. So. What was that like for you to suddenly make that jump? Was it very sudden or was there kind of a very gradual build in terms of, I guess, your responsibilities and your status? So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, so I started out as a programmer um, and then ended up kind of in uh, a production role um, after programming. Um, and that was even before, uh, so, you know, before the sort of acquisition, I'd sort of made that, that move. And I was actually going to go and move to America because um, I, I wanted at the time I wanted to move to America with a little more opportunities, and the UK was a bit dull. And I didn't do it because the company was about to be the, the studio was about to be bought by Idos. Well, it was Domark Idos. It was this big reverse IP thing. Um, yep. And so yeah, I kind of got. I guess I got a bit of a, an, an elevation uh, out of that. Um, and then Paul Ranson, who had founded Big Red Software, he after a year or so, I can't remember how long, he he left. He decided he didn't want to do it anymore. Um, and you know we weren't very organised back in those days, to be honest. You know, so like studios are far more organised now. Um, and so it's I kind of almost feel like I was the designated grown up, and so it kind of ended oh, okay. up ended up falling on me to some extent. And I was hideously ill prepared for it. You know, and I look back now and go, oh my god. Um, Few people ever are. Well, yeah, probably, probably. Um, and you know, there was a time, and again, it was Idos was a very very different company at the time. Um, but you know, essentially, uh, we we were under threat of closure. Um, I don't know if they were like annoyed that Paul, the founder, had left, but we weren't particularly expensive. So I think we actually ended up kind of hiding in the books for for quite a while. Oh right, um, okay. And then I, I was in negotiations. I was trying to basically save the studio, keep everybody's jobs. You know, I think we were about fifteen, sixteen people. I don't know. Um, and I was talking to all sorts of publishers, and 
uh, and what have you. And, and it sort of all, um, and we were talking to, you know, back in the day, Acclaim. Um, oh, yeah, okay. We, we, were, we were talking to them because we were doing, we were prototyping a game and it, it kind of matched, we, we managed to get it in uh, Edge magazine um, because my friend Keith Stewart was working there and managed to pull some strings and we sort of got a little bit of a feature. I think it was just like a quarter page or something just of upcoming games and we were on it. Uh, this game called uh, Hardcore, I think. Um, still, that that little page, that quarter page, is really important back then. I oh, still remember absolutely. flicking through. I mean, the the local magazines here, but you know, Edge yeah. would uh, pop up as well. And like any game that featured in the magazine was a game that you you took seriously. Whether it was yeah. necessarily your to your taste or not was a whole other thing, but you would take it seriously. Yeah. So I mean, and based on that, a claim actually got in touch and went, "Oh, that looks like our uh, that they had bought a comic book firm." Um, and so we ended up talking to them about like, "Oh, okay, well, we can tailor that for this." and you know what have you and it all fell apart in the end unfortunately um but then what happened is um we were talking to so one of the other companies that had been bought um into the idos group at the same time as us was a company called simis who they were a flight sim uh company uh, and they'd moved into doing sort of more mass market stuff as well but they'd they'd managed to buy themselves out they the founders weren't particularly happy of being part of a larger group um and so that we were talking to them about you know possible acquisition by them and there was also talking to um, Philip and Andrew Oliver, um, you know, who made the Dizzy Games, who had their company that at the time was called Interactive Studios, and so we were looking at being acquired by them. And I think everybody in the office was a bit more excited about, or a bit more in tune with the kind of games that they were making over the games that Sinus were making at the time. Yeah. And so we said, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And then negotiations with IDOS, uh, just for whatever reason, things just all kind of fell apart, and so they closed the studio. Uh, I got called down to London and told, "Look, you've got to make everybody redundant," and it was like, "Great, cool." But out of it, we, you know, pretty much everybody ended up walking two hundred yards up the road and starting new jobs um, at Interactive Studios and getting a, a, like a payout for redundancy. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the best outcome, but it also wasn't the worst outcome. Uh, you know, one door closed, another one opened. This is so. This is Blitz Game Studios and all that at this point. Well, right? well this is well. It, it wasn't called Blitz then. It was still called Interactive Studios, which was yeah. you know arguably the most uh, you know generic name uh, for a, for a company ever. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, we walked up the road because there were, there was a bunch. We were lucky in Leamington Spy in the UK. There was actually a bunch of developers, and it all kind of sprung out of the, the Codemasters era. So you know, there was Interactive Studios, there was Supersonic, you know, there was Big Red Software, a whole bunch. Um, so yeah, it was it was at a time when you know we could go and uh, add some more capacity to them. They needed needed some more people, and so yeah, yeah, we sort of walked up the road and um, started all again, I guess. At which point, I mean, we've obviously mentioned a few licenses already, but this is where mm. I feel you know as I start doing a bit of my my reading, this is where I'll, uh, I guess there's a larger number of licenses that you're working with. I mean, there's Titan AE, there's Tasmos Wanted, which you know. BAFTA nominated title. Yeah, yeah. Throw in there. Um, <laughs> fairly Odd Parents, Breaking the Rules. The, yeah, yeah. Uh, you worked, there was the pitch that you worked on for Reservoir Dogs as well. Yep. Uh, what, I guess you're starting to work with more companies in, uh, in terms of their licenses, their IP. What was that like compared to what you'd done before with, uh, I guess, you know, working with, say, Adam's Family and Game Genie? It's a little bit different to actually trying to develop a title directly attached to some established IP. Yeah, look, and, and I think a bunch of the folks that, you know, moved from Big Red up, up the road uh, to Interactive Studios Blitz um, were a bit disappointed to go and work on licensed stuff because they thought it was, you know, maybe... Lesser in some way. Yeah, it wasn't as exciting as making new IP. Um, but, I mean, you know, to be fair to them, like, the, you know, the Oliver Twins had built a very good business out of doing family-friendly games. 
Um, and a lot of that obviously involved working with toy brands, with you know TV and film. So I mean, I was I was interested in it, and I mean, the first thing that I got dropped in to do was the Titan A um, game, and so that was yeah, that was it was really exciting to do. Um, you know, we, I'd be getting scripts every week, and I'd actually get a you know you can tell how long ago it is that I would get a, a VHS tape um, FedExed to me every week from the studio with basically that week's rough cut of the movie. So yeah, okay. it'd, be, it'd be a selection of like um, animatic and then uh, rendered, but not final rendered by any means, uh, sort of footage. Um, and it would have my name printed across the bottom so that I couldn't, on every frame, so I couldn't leak it. Um, so that was nice. Um, but I had to return every tape as well. So I wouldn't get a new tape until I returned the old one. So, you know, there's a bit of security around it. But it felt cool to see something in production, you know. It was exciting. It wasn't really known about at the time. It was, you know, in a days before, you know, everything was leaked on the internet so early. It's like yeah, it secrets was, it was actually really... remained secret back then. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, we went out to, um, you know, went out to the studio, to Don Bluth Studios uh, in Arizona, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. And that was that was cool, like seeing they had, the, this was back in the days when the industry was obsessed with uh, silicon graphics workstations. Uh, and they had a massive server room full of all these SGIs and they were rendering. It's, it's the kind of stuff that I'm pretty sure you could probably render on your PC now without a drama. But, you know, back then there were back rooms then. and rooms and it took days to do stuff. Um, but it was wild. And, you know, especially because, you know, Don Bluth pretty much transported his studio from Ireland to Arizona. So you'd be walking around the studio, we'd met all these people and, you know, there's... Uh, a lot of broad Irish accents in the middle of Arizona, and you're like, "This, this just feels strange." Where am I? What's yeah, happened here? It was, yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, it was really, it was interesting to do. Unfortunately, I mean, in the end, um, the the game. This was back in the day when games didn't do, didn't necessarily do day and date with films, which seems yep. unbelievable now. You're like, "What?" But you know, back then, you know, we we didn't get a lot of information until the film was, you know, part way through, halfway through, whatever. Um, and so really we were not going to hit day and date and I think that was part of the reason that in the end the project never saw the light of day there were some demo discs produced that I think yeah. went out to retail but like the, the thing never finished um, on PS1 which which was a bit sad but it was it was interesting to go and do it was interesting to work on um, and then after that it was uh, working on uh, Taz Wanted with uh, sort of infograms of Warner Brothers um, and that was interesting I mean and, and we pitched for a lot of stuff in between time you know we were always pitching I know we talked about, um, and we pitched for a Stargate game at one point. Um, obviously, there was stuff in the studio, you know, years and years and years before it became mainstream. Uh, there was a short-lived project with Lego. Yeah. Um, you know, there was some stuff uh, like with Action Man, GI Joe. Um, you know, so there was there was lots of sort of licensed brand stuff going on. And just before I'd got there, actually, they'd shipped the uh, the War Games um, oh. game. So yep. that was that was kind of how the connection with Fox came about because they you know they'd done the the PC and PlayStation strategy game uh, and yeah. the relationship well. has been established yeah. at that point. Yeah, yeah, and so that's kind of how Time AE came about, and yeah, just sadly didn't see the light today. The uh, the one that in, intrigued me the most only because it was something that begun under your under your watch and under your time there, but ultimately released after the fact was mm. uh, your pitch for Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Um, yeah, you left before it released. Yes, but obviously you were there for that initial pitch and, yeah, and yeah. that whole process. Mm. How true being able to sit back and I guess play the game purely as a consumer by the time it actually released. Mm. How true was that 
title to your initial pitch in the end? Like, was did you look at it and go, yeah, that's that's still what I envisaged, or had it really changed and evolved in a way that, whether you agreed or disagreed, I guess doesn't necessarily matter too much in in one respect. But like, how, how did that kind of evolve compared to what you knew it to be? So, I mean, the, the dirty secret is I've never finished it. Uh, oh, okay, I've, I've got I've got it. Um, bless them, I've got you know the. The Oliver's did send me copies, so I've got it on PC and PlayStation 2, I think. Um, I've only played a bit, um, but I know from like, watching videos and stuff and talking to the team, it, it changed. Like, the pitch that we did and what the game ended up being, uh, they diverged. You know? yeah. um, not entirely different games. I mean, we I remember when we were prototyping um, after we'd sort of... Uh, so we, we won the pitch, which was kind of entertaining. Like In the UK, every developer wanted to make the Reservoir Dogs game. I mean, of course they did. Right, it's yeah, oh massive God, IP. You know, it's like licensed, but it's cool. Um, so, and we, you know, Blitz along with everybody else pitched, and, and I don't think people probably didn't think that Blitz would get it, given the family-friendly nature. Um, but there was a bunch yeah. of folks uh, where he was involved in the uh, in the pitching for it. Um, I seem to remember Simon Smith uh, being involved in that as well. And um, there was, you know, we, we talked about doing a lot of things to basically to to win it. Um, I do know, like they went down and pitched all in suits at them. Um, there was also a, uh, a bloody rubber ear that was delivered to oh. them. Um, so there was a lot of like, look, you know, um, we care about this brand and we really want to do this, you know. Um, and so that you know, the, the, the game was one, you know, we, and when we were pro- after we'd sort of uh, we were in pre-production on the title, and so we were working for however many months on pre-production. I was still there for that, and it was basically I was leaving uh, before that was going to finish. Because uh, I was moving out to Australia, and um, you know, we had, uh, you know, I don't want to say GTA because it wasn't, but like we had like um, a city grid, and we, you know, had all this work had been done on, you know, some having, shared DNA. Having, yeah, having like having having sort of having the thing populated with traffic or what have you, um, and I think I don't know that it was ever going to be particularly an open world game, but you know, you could looking at that, you could you could maybe sort of think uh, think that it was, but. You know, I think a lot of the kind of um, the gunplay stuff came a lot after I'd gone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was a fun one, certainly to pitch for, and I enjoyed what I did on it, and it was uh, yeah, an interesting experience. That's for sure. I, mean, I don't, I don't know that they ever got to deal with Quentin Tarantino at all. I'm not sure. Oh, I mean, that that would have been exciting. Oh, I know. Absolutely, everybody was. Yeah, I think everybody was keen for that. But I don't know if they ever actually got to to, to speak to him. I'm not sure if he was that. Um, sort of into it and, and I think one of the other things was um, you probably know the story of um, there's a few of the actors who've been in it that don't allow uh, any figurines or licensed material to have well it's the likenesses but they don't allow the characters to have guns so oh, okay, sometimes right. you'll see like with the collectible figures it's like oh you know gun is, is emitted by actor's request kind of thing so it's an interesting thing like dealing with a license you know that kind of thing and what I was alluding to earlier well. with with dealing with, oh yeah, with likenesses, absolutely. When we were doing Taz Wanted um, with Warner Brothers, uh, Warner Brothers were very, you know, you sort of think that, that'd be easy, like the Looney Tunes stuff is all, you know, slapstick or what have you. But we, yeah, funny games. We couldn't give Yosemite Sam pistols. Oh, wait, that. I know, and it's like you think, well, that's, that's kind of, that's yeah, exactly, exactly. But we weren't allowed to. And the, and the reason was, it was like, well, they didn't want uh, the characters to to do anything 
I think they're basically they were concerned that like daddy might have a pistol at home and kids could emulate what Yosemite Sam oh, was doing. Right, okay. And you're like, okay. So we ended up if you if you ever actually play that game, you'll see that we, we actually just have him using finger guns because we could get away with that. So he was like <laughs> pew pew and then blowing on you know his finger guns. Um, but we were fine using uh, you know black cartoon bombs because you know apparently that was all right. Um, but it was, it, was, it was a really interesting thing to do with the, the brand and how, you know, they were like, no, 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 we're very protective of this. And it, you just wouldn't have expected it from Yosemite Sam, right? No, that that one, that really baffles me. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess it makes sense when you explain it, but it's at first blush there, that just seems mind-blowing that that character, of all yeah. characters, wouldn't be allowed a gun. I know. but And that's sort of coming back to kind of what I enjoyed about licenses we found a solution. Now, was it the brilliant solution? I don't know, but it was kind of funny and it fit the brand and everybody was happy, you know, with the whole finger guns thing. Now, we'll, we'll be careful not to put a giant, speaking of uh, of targets, and those, we don't necessarily put a giant target on your back because you are now one of the, now you've obviously moved to Australia, you're one of the few people in this country that actually have reservoir dogs. So, so yeah. no one come chasing, <laughs> uh, chasing John since, for so, anyone who's unaware, the game was banned out here, um, yeah. or refused classification. So, one of the few people in the country, presumably, that have it. So, yeah, <laughs> it's a nice little bit of uh, local trivia in perhaps in that uh, closet there behind you. So, what prompted the move to Australia in the first place? So, the next step, I mean, is THQ Australia. But yeah, what what prompted that move? Was it for THQ Australia, or were you looking for a bit of a sea change at that point? What what actually prompted the move? Um, I got engaged to an Australian girl. And Usually her, pretty good reason, right? Yeah, and, and her visa was running out uh, in the UK. So, you know, uh, romantically we decided we should just get married. Um, she was actually quite pleased. She would have been uh, happy. My now wife would have been happy to stay in the UK. And I was like, no, uh, let's go to Australia. Um, so I'd actually been to Australia. I'd been to Brisbane once um, with her on holiday. And then it was like I don't know, a year or so later I ended up moving here. Um, and I actually moved out without a job. Um, so it wasn't for THQ. Um, I spoke to a few folks before I came out here. You know, I spoke to Chanel at Halfbrick uh, back when... Trying, back, to get, trying to get the ball rolling. Yeah, back when, you know, Chanel was working uh, out of the basement of Chrome um, doing, like, GBA uh, tie, I think it was. Um, and I spoke to George Fiddler at... Um, he was at Creative Assembly at the time before Sega bought them. Uh, and then I spoke to uh, Roy Tesla at THQ. And I'd actually met Roy from... Uh, so Roy, who was one of the guys, along with Steve Dorderman, who started THQ Studio Australia, actually used to work for EA. And I'd met him when he came to Blitz uh, and we were doing due diligence on something. I think it was uh, Chicken Run, actually, maybe. Yeah. Um, or uh, So uh, at Blitz, I ended up being one of the guys that would do the due diligence presentations. So talking to publishers about like, hey, this is how we work. This is how we... This is our security. This is how we hire people. This is how we fire people. This is how we deliver milestones. This is, you know, the whole operations thing of the company, really, in the studio to give them sort of confidence. Um, and I met Roy there and thought nothing of it. Um, and then it turned out, yeah, he was, you know, sort of GM uh, of, of the studio here in Brisbane. And so got in touch and came in for an interview, uh, probably a week or two after I'd arrived in Brisbane. So before I got married. And then it's like, yep, yeah, okay met with a few people there and it was like okay so come back to work and you know we'll give you a job on the 1st of February so I had kind of from like I had November December January off you know got married in the December and then started work at THQ and you know it sort of helped that the last project nicely. one of the last projects before Reservoir Dogs that the last thing that I did at, uh, at Blitz that the last game that I fully shipped was uh, for THQ so I'd 
started the relationship with THQ for Blitz. Um, so that was with the Failure of Parents Breaking the Rules game. Um, and they carried on, you know, and did multiple games for THQ, a whole load of things, more Failure of Parents. Um, you know, they did Bratz, they did Barbie, all sorts of things. Um, and so, yeah, so there were folks at THQ, particularly on the sort of kids and family side, that knew me from Blitz. So, you know, I think the American side was like quite keen, like, oh, yeah, we could employ him. You know, he you had was, half a foot in the door already. Yeah. So, so yeah, that, that worked out. And, um, yeah, so ended up there and it was, you know, supposed to basically to, to go in and they were starting up um, a project based on Avatar The Last Airbender, another Nickelodeon product. Because uh, there was about three of those in the end, wasn't there, in that period on the... Yeah, well... Straddling we, we, the Wii primarily, but... Yeah, so we did... Yeah, we, we ended up doing... With the movie, we ended up doing four. Um, oh, yeah, of course, yes. But yeah, so I mean, I ended up, you know, I was supposed to be doing that and then kind of got a bit sidetracked and parachuted in. There was some problems that the game, uh, the, the studio was doing uh, SpongeBob SquarePants game, um, Lights, Camera, Pants, which was a party game. Um, and it needed some extra project management, needed shipping, whatever. So I kind of got diverted onto that and spent, I don't know, probably my first nine months or a year or something working on, on Spongebob. Getting that over the line. Yeah, and we got it shipped and we shipped it early for Europe. Everybody was happy. The studio won an award. Um, and so that was great. And then sort of went back to, to Avatar. Yeah, so, you know, we did that. Uh, so again, it was working working with Nickelodeon, you know, working with brands um, and, and working with the creators as well. So the, um, the creators of it were, were kind of interested. So we went out to, to meet them um, at Nickelodeon in Burbank and you know, there was like 20 people around the table and a couple of us game developers, you know, all sorts of like Browns people and legal and the creators yeah. and what have you. And then, you know, like a couple of us dweebs, you know, sat there in developer t-shirts. But I mean, it was a really interesting thing to go and do. Um, and it's like, I don't what, know, did, what did you get from that? Um, that they, we kind of got what they were uh, excited about with the show and what the show meant to them. Um, because it's like, you know, if you just see episodes of the show or if you just see, like, concept art... Because we get sent boxes and boxes of concept art. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, cool. You know, it's fantastic to see. And we had it up all around the studio. And it looks amazing. It's so, so interesting to see it. But it's like... It's still that, hard to translate. Yeah, when you get to talk to people that are creating the brand and passionate about the brand and you sort of hear what their plans are long-term. I mean, that was absolutely fascinating. And you're like, wow, you know, that's impressive. You know, I mean, I don't think... You know, the first game probably wasn't the best, but it, it sort of it hit the timing right and did well. Um, and we also we, we managed to get it. It was um, it was a Wii launch title, so you know that was exciting. That, that was exciting for us. Um, and it didn't it didn't launch for the Wii launch in Australia, but it did in America. Um, but yeah, I remember um, you know we were working on it. There was like and we knew lots of other companies around the, the world that were working on Wii titles. But I think we were the first to get into Lotcheck. And we were the first to fail Logic, so oh. two two wins there, really. Two firsts is, is what I'm <laughs> Lots saying. Lots of firsts. That's all Absolutely. you can ask for, right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, as as you mentioned, we've kind of established here again working with IP, mm. established IP. I mean, we can talk about Megamind as well. Mm. Again, there was there was working with the the actual film adaptation version of Avatar as well. So you got to work yep. with M. M. Night Shyamalan for that, which yep. would have been quite fascinating, I'm sure. Well, he's he's got a movie theater in a barn in his backyard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's there's I a mean, lot to del- delve into there. I'm sure. Th- don't you? I I try. I, I keep it hidden. It's it's just. I, I, yeah. I, so, so it, sh- I don't tell people about it. Yeah, we, we went over to so we flew over to Philadelphia, um, where he was. He had a he had a, a like a big warehouse. He was filming in like the interiors and stuff. Um, but we went to we went to M Night Shyamalan's house, um, which was a trip. Um, 
and you know you get there and it's like well what do I call you and he goes oh you can call me Knight and it's like okay, okay. yeah sure um, and my, my colleague and I had uh, on our way over there from, from Brisbane um, we thought well we'd, we'd better watch his latest movie uh, in case you know he says oh have you seen it um, and unfortunately on the plane that was The Happening which I, I oh. don't yeah um, <laughs> yeah and so you yeah, know we got the, we got to his house loved classic that one yeah and, and his and he had like the standee of the, you know the movie standee from the theatre like in his living room and we're like okay but we didn't talk about that um, yeah Bullet so, dodged. Yeah, yeah. But it, it was an interesting thing on lots of levels um, because he'd never worked on a film where there were consumer products before. Um, oh, so, okay. you know, obviously all the, you know, there was no The Happening, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. mug and the bowl set. Or, yeah, exactly. Or so there was no... covers, as we were talking about before. Yeah, exactly. So, there was, so it was Ooh, his, first, his first experience. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we should exploit that. But um, I'll, I'll offer it, it to my son, who's, you know, two and a half. We'll see, see what he thinks about the, the yeah. idea of having a Duna cover with uh, Happening-related material okay. on it right yeah probably, um, probably won't get past my wife to be honest <laughs> yeah fair fair but you know he'd never worked with anything like that so like you know again a couple of sort of game developers from australia plus a bunch of execs from thq in america and nickelodeon descending on, the, on his house and we're, you know we're sort of there with a, a kind of like a wii controller and we're trying to hook stuff up to his tv and you know it's like do you play games and he's like nah okay my girls play he said guitar something which at the time oh, would have been right. guitar, guitar hero. and we're like okay so it's like well you know it, it, it was a a little bit of a, a more difficult conversation than we'd had with the uh, avatar cartoon creators because they were you know younger younger guys and they People were into games and you know all that kind of stuff and it just didn't seem to be anything that, that he was interested in and i get that i can totally understand it so it was you know his idea of what could be done with the game versus ours was um uh, interesting, shall we say? I mean, I had a very pleasant day. It was also for comedy value. It was my wedding anniversary, so I spent my oh. wedding anniversary at M Night Shyamalan's house. Uh, but it's like his staff made me a pizza for lunch, so that was nice. I guess. That's something. Um, but yeah, you know, he was it a good pizza. Uh, it was actually, yeah. Oh, good. Um, but I mean, he had, you know, he's like, oh well, you know, because it was with the, it was in the glory days of Wii and motion control, so you know, waggling things around wildly. It's the big buzz. Yeah, big buzz and, and, idea at the time. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, look, some of the stuff that we wanted to do was actually, you know, fairly good in terms of, you know, if you if you watch the show, like the air bending and water bending and earth bending. So, you know, we have like your point the control, the, the Wiimote and you pull it up to lift earth out of the ground or whatever. So it's actually, you know, not just mindless sort of kind of organic yeah, style. It, it mirrored, mirrored the ideas of the it show. It was trying yeah. to, yeah, uh, yeah. Slash movie. Yeah. But I mean, he was, he had much, he had grander ideas outside of our budget um, of like, well, Wow, wouldn't it be cool if at the end of the game, like the kids have learned Tai Chi, and you're like, "Yes, it would." That would be great, but it's not happening. Uh, yeah, didn't really fit in our budget, unfortunately. But you know, it was again, it was an interesting thing to go and do, um, and go and go and sort of you know talk to him, and, and the Mega Mind trip as well was was good. Uh, DreamWorks were very, um, you know, they had a lot of experience with consumer product. It was quite different from that point of view, um, so they were far more. Giving, I guess, giving suggestions. If we were saying, "Hey, we want to do this," or we were showing them something, and they're like, "Oh no, that's not right," but do this instead because they, you know, obviously uh, they've got some experience. They Shrek, had experience. Yeah, I mean, you know, because Activision for many years had had the DreamWorks license, and they'd done a whole bunch of games for everything, and then THQ had picked it up, and I think Mega Mind was the first one, and so you know, we were dealing with people that sort of 
they'd had experience in the medium before and, and you know they were really sort of excited to get involved in a game and um, yeah they gave us access to so much stuff it was very very cool yeah that's i mean that's a a series of really really fascinating sort of stories there from that i mean i've got to ask when when you did spend the time with uh your friend knight yes uh did you come away with a feeling about how that movie was tracking because we all know how it ended up did you have a did you what was your gut feel off the back of all that so when we were there so we saw again so we went to his barn in the backyard and we got to see like a rough cut on his uh movie screen um and it was all uh all the effects were very wireframe, rough render. Oh, okay. But I, so it was like, mm, yeah, don't know. And, and we'd seen we'd seen lots of pictures of props and costumes and concept art, so we knew like all the sort of all the costume stuff was actually going to be quite cool. And I think when we went there, I think they just announced that they brought uh, Industrial Light and Magic on board to do effects. And so I think we were like, oh, actually, okay, maybe it could be pretty good. Um. And then, as you say, we we've all seen it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, we kind of know how it ended up one other really fascinating one I guess you know when we're, we're talking kind of Australian titles De Blob is one that mm. regularly surfaces in conversation and yeah. you I, I don't know how much credit you kind of want to take <laughs> you you found this title obviously you, you weren't working on it but you found you discovered this title how did you happen upon it in the first place so it, it was one we were making it would have been one of the avatar games i can't remember which one um and it was at lunchtime uh you know and i was just I was surfing the web and, and like indie games had started to become more of a thing on pc yeah. um and i was i don't know i'd, I'd gone to some website that i used to go to that would sort of show off some interesting indie games and, and you know you're starting to see some student games um that's where blue tongue popped up well, and that's, yeah, that's that's where, um, so with the blob, um, obviously it had been done at the University of Utrecht and it was for a tourism thing. So the original blob demo, uh, which I downloaded and played and showed everybody and went, this is great. This was done by a handful of students in a very short period of time. Um, and it was very, for what it was, it was very polished at the time. And it was just like, you could see the fun. Um, and it was like, wow, this is so cool. And so, you know, I was showing it to everybody in the studio and, showing it up to you know my boss at the time and then Steve Dorderman, the, the VP of, uh, of Asia Pacific. And he's like, you know, do you think there's something in this? They went, absolutely. So basically the, the European office got in touch with the university. Well, with, I got in touch with the students uh, with uh, UST and was like, hey, um, we kind of like what you're doing with that. And it turned out the university, I think, owned it because it was their coursework or it was their project oh, yeah, or whatever. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, how do you pry that one out of there? The university was really into it. They're like, okay, that's cool. They wanted to have the, the benefit for them was the relationship with industry. So I think yes, I don't know. I don't know if there was a lot of money changed hands, but the blob basically came to THQ, um, and then we were busy in Brisbane. And so at that point, we'd uh, acquired uh, Blue Tongue down in Melbourne, and so uh, Nick Hanger uh, in particular took took that on and. Oh my god! Did such a wonderful job on it. I still love it. It's fantastic. It's uh, it's great. And then John Guska, the sequel. Absolutely, yeah. And 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 the soundtrack as well. I sort of have to talk about that because John Guska uh, did that. John used to work with me at Blitz in the UK, so we'd work together on Taz Wanted on the interactive soundtrack. And then he messaged me out of the blue one time about he wanted to move to Australia and he'd seen this vacancy at Blue Tongue and did I know them? And I'm like, well, yeah. 
and so he ended up moving down to uh, to Melbourne and, and doing uh, doing the soundtrack for it, which is just it's still good, it's still so fun. Um, yeah, and so it ended up being this huge um, commercial success for for THQ, and it, being on the Wii was just a fantastic right place, right time as well. You know, with the original, um, yeah. And then I think the the sequel came to PS3 and Xbox, probably 360 was it at the time. Yeah, 360. Yep. Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. Loved it. It's, it's been really interesting seeing it remastered for Switch recently. You know, it, yeah, that was it, quite cool. It lives on, um, but yeah, oh, no, it was it was wonderful. And um, and I have to say, Nick did a you know did a fantastic job. Like, there's there's so much uh, politics and social commentary in that game that people probably didn't realise. It was over. just a nice little game about painting, um, and it, anything but. So yeah, uh, loved it, loved it. So I, don't, I mean, I. I guess I, I helped it come to THQ is about as far as I can really say. It's like the real the real magic was was the team down in in, uh, in Melbourne. That discovery and helping people to find a platform is really important. That's obviously a big part of a lot of what you're doing more recently. Yeah, but yeah, uh, it's true. As, as as we kind of get towards that time, THQ now that that period was 2005 to 2009. What's I guess important about that 2009 sort of period within the the local scene is that things were starting to get quite turbulent locally when it comes to a lot of a lot of publishers, big and small developers, big and small in the country. Yeah. Is like what was ultimately the the games industry collapse mm. in uh, mm. in Australia at the time? Was that a big part of how things came to an end for you at THQ Australia, or how, how did that time come to an end? Look, it was it was uh, it, it was part of it, I guess. I mean, we were, you know, um, there was a bunch of commercial things going on within THQ that it was like I can't really talk about, unfortunately. Yeah, the, yeah we're kind of, you know, it was like yeah. Um, so there's a bunch of stuff that sort of um, happened. There. I mean, at THQ, we'd seen like other companies change. I mean. Um, you know, Pandemic obviously had, uh, you know, they were bought yeah, the by... the famous one. Well, they were bought by EA or, you know, um, it was it was originally, uh, it was Bioware and Pandemic merged, didn't they, in the States? Yep. And so then, you know, Pandemic uh, Brisbane, I guess it was part of that because that was John Riccatello when he was there running, I don't know, it was Capital Partners, it was some VC company that bought them. Um, and yep. then he, then magically he went to work for EA and then EA bought that group. Ooh. Nothing shady there at all, I'm sure. There's uh, a through line it, of some sort. It, entirely coincidental. Um, so then, you know, Pandemic obviously were very bullish about, you know, hey, well, we're part of EA now. And we've got loads of money. And, you know, uh, they were they were quite, uh, they're very ambitious, which is fine, which is cool. Um, but there was one time, there was one year, there was, uh, you know, they ran an, uh, an E3 party, invited all the other developers. Um, but there was also the, oh, and could you just let us know the job title of everybody that's come in? And it's like, what? So it was a little bit of like... An elitist sort of thing? Well, no, I think it was more... A, a, it felt a bit like a poaching party for staff, to be oh, honest. Oh, right, um, okay. But, um, you know, it was it was a fun night, whatever. Um, but then after that, it was one of those where, you know, you sort of looked... And again, it, it's, it happens with many publishers when they buy studios. It's like not all the studios survive. Um, and I remember yeah. there was a bunch of it at the time going, well, look, you know, we're happy that the pandemic folks got bought and, you know, they're in a swanky new office and we're happy that's great. Let's see how it goes. And of course, unfortunately, it didn't end well, um, you know, for the pandemic. And so we actually ended up getting a bunch of ex-pandemic folks came to THQ. So we we were the sort of safe home for a while. 
Um, well, I think I mean maybe you got like Meg Summers came through there at one point. She was she, um, yeah, she did. She, she came. Was, after she was a my past time. guest on the show oh, years ago at this point. Yeah, so yeah. Something we discussed when she came through. So yeah, yeah. So there was a bunch of people came. To the, so there were some folks before like it went down, and I think there was some like when it went down. Um, and obviously, you know, similar situation to folks that went to Sega and what have you when you know because Sega got uh, Sega bought uh, Creative Assembly. Yeah. Um, but they obviously lasted a, a fairly long time. And it was more when I was at Kicksite, we then started to get people drifting off from Sega to Kicksite, which was a little bit awkward because we were on the ground floor and they were up the lift. So they literally had to walk past our office every day to go to work. Um, but yeah, I mean, you could sort of see things things were changing. Um, and, I, and I suppose it's out of those days that Brisbane has the kind of, has had the indie scene that it has. Because most of, you know, those people, uh, you know, who started studios came from something whether it was THQ or Pandemic or Chrome yeah. um, you know so I mean you talk about Meg obviously the screw tape and you know you've got um, you know some of the you know Morgan and Dan with Defiance yeah. you know sort of actually ashes of that um, and then at but the yeah, same it was, time it was really ugly for a while though oh absolutely and, and you know it, at the same time when things were all sort of going bad for us and we were in sort of console land um, you know Chanel was on the on the rise with, um, you know, with Fruit Ninja and stuff. So you know the, the sort of shift to mobile. So yeah, it's it's certainly it's a shadow of what it was, unfortunately, right now. But I mean, we are getting there. I think it's it's mostly through the indie scene, I suppose. But it is just gradually building and building and building. And I mean, who knows? Maybe lessons have been learnt from how things scaled up last time. And obviously, the the face of the industry as a whole has changed dramatically in those years since but uh mm. I, I feel like you know i mean a, a lot of people obviously associate victoria as being you know the a, a real hot spot but yeah there's there's lots of pockets i guess in various different parts of australia that are just consistently growing i feel and i you know i think we're batting well above our league when it comes to just the success rate i suppose the the, the strike rate it seems to be quite good in terms of making it big yeah um, being recognized on the international stage yeah look i think so and i, I think um you know, certainly, you know, in Brisbane, the studios are broadly, you know, obviously some of the biggest studios are in Melbourne, there's no doubt about it, you know, um, Sledgehammer and you know, EA, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, there's certainly, there's a lot more going on in Brisbane than people think there is. Um, yeah. I think, you know, uh, myself included, I was, I was surprised. I, I, for the longest time, I didn't realise that Golf With Your Friends was made in Brisbane. Yeah, okay. It's like, oh God, you know, I think, and, and they're the same, you know, those guys, you know, the brothers are quite, um, you know, they keep themselves to themselves, really lovely, lovely guys, but they, you know, they're, they're not as known as, you know, some of the folks elsewhere in the industry in, in Brisbane. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot that's coming out. And I think, you know, there's certainly, I know from the publishers that I, I've talked to and I work with, there's a lot more interest in what's going on in Brisbane at the moment than there has been in a long time. So you know, there's, there's a lot of things going on, whether, uh, you know, people have got, you know, projects signed or are signing projects and publishers are looking. And, and I think at the moment, you know, if you look in the last few months of like the, actually the spate of acquisitions that's gone on in Australia, um, yeah. that's kind of encouraging. Um, that you know, They're in the, the coal mines sort of stuff? Well, I mean, just the fact that now, you know, I think Australia is being seen as like, okay, it can do quality, you know, because I know, you know, to begin with, THQ set up in Brisbane and it was very much with the remit of we can produce low-cost Nickelodeon games. Yeah. Because Australia was cheaper than, you know, California. Um, and really, you know, one of the things that worked against uh, THQ and all of the other studios was the exchange rates. When the yeah, dollar suddenly, got, suddenly it wasn't cheaper. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, it wasn't cheaper, and also the employment laws of like, oh, actually, you have to you know give people notice, and you can't just fire them at a moment's notice like you can in America. So there were, there were a lot of things with that, and I think also publishers wanted uh, you know all of the publishing money at the time really was coming from the US, and so if you're spending money, do you want to spend it locally where you can keep your eye on it, or do you want to spend it halfway around the world? And so I think that came into yeah. a great deal as well. Um, but I mean, right now there's a lot of um, you know a lot of interest in in Australian industry from outside. Um, so I mean, you know, obviously, uh, you know, watching, uh, you know, Ross. Um, so oh, it began. Yep. Yep. Um, and you know, uh, with with Tantalus keywords as well. You know, it's it, surprising this time. It's it's it seems to be very European. Uh, the, the influence, which is which is interesting, and I know one of the the real advantages. Sorry, it's only a matter of time before Microsoft buys everything. <laughs> <laughs> and I for one welcome art. No, um, but. <laughs> You know, I think, I suspect, I wouldn't be surprised if there's more acquisitions to come because I think, you know, there's a real, um, there's interest in having uh, studios all over the world. Yeah. You know, I don't think people want to bet. Diversifying. All, yeah, they don't want to bet all their money on what, in one currency. Um, I think our time zone, you know, our, our, our closeness to China is, is appealing, um, even if our relations with China aren't great. But, you know, from a geographic point of view yeah. and, you know, for when things maybe get better it's like being closer to china is good um so i think there's probably more gonna happen um and, and that'll be that'll be good that'll keep things interesting more to come Absolutely. over the, the coming months and years in your eyes yeah i think so i think so so as we continue to develop uh so obviously we, we mentioned there was the collapse but also your departure from uh, from thq mm. i i've got listed uh redflow international there for a, for a brief uh, stint, which, as, as I was kind of reading about that one, that's not games related at all. So that's a that's a little step out of the industry for a while. There was that a result of what had happened? Are you similar, I guess, a lot of others trying to find your place off the back of everything that happened. Yeah, look, I mean, so there was a few of us who were trying to set up a studio um, with a foreign uh, company, and that didn't come off, unfortunately. And it was like, well, okay, I need to go and find a job. Um, yeah. Need an income. Yeah, and. Uh, so basically, when I was looking at, you know, because I've been working in production and, you know, doing various bits of project management, I was looking for sort of project management style roles and looking uh, sort of at technical companies. Um, and I ended up, I applied for a whole bunch of stuff um, because I didn't want to leave Australia. I had offers to go overseas and I'm like, do you know what? I'm actually really loving living in Australia. I don't want to go, I didn't want to go back to the UK. I could have gone back to the UK and got a job pretty easily, but it's like, ah, oh, I just don't want to do it. And I think by that point, I decided that I didn't actually want to go and work in America, whereas like 21-year-old me did. Um, yeah. 30-something-year-old me didn't. Um, and, you know, I'll stand... Our time changes things. Yeah, I'll stand by that for now. Um, so I ended up um, interviewing uh, with... And there are, it, it's a, 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 it seems so random that they employed me, but good on them for doing it. Um, so they were a, a recently floated on the ASX uh, startup energy storage company. So basically doing battery storage before you'd heard of Tesla, really. Yeah. Um, and so I went in there um, as a sort of senior project manager to help um, basically organize their R&D and, you know, get a timeline together of, you know, what they were going to do, a roadmap. So, you know, I was doing lots of sort of project management, like inside the company, also kind of managing up really to like the CEO and the CFO, you know, because they're trying, you know, you've got, um, you know, the, the guy that was running R&D, polymath absolutely brilliant guy didn't really have time to deal with the management side so it's kind of i was brought in i guess to to manage him as much as anything 
Um, yeah. And so then ended up working, you know, doing uh, working with industry as well. So like we were putting this energy storage stuff into projects with, you know, Osgrid and, you know, all these kind of energy sort of companies. You know, the thing that I, I was nervous about going and doing project management, like what I would refer to as real project management, because I always kind of figured like, oh, in games, we're just making up as we go along and we're a bit rubbish, you know, because I, I got into sort of project yeah. management without being taught it and kind of made my way a bit like coding, really. Um, and I just assumed ah, learned it on the fly. Yeah, it's like oh, we're a bit rubbish. Um, and then I went to do it, you know, with these budgets and you know, with you know, essentially infrastructure. And it was like, oh my god, we're really good in games. You know, I remember having a meeting, uh, you know, with one electricity company, and they're like, so yeah, look, it's going to be six months late and two months over, but you know, two million over budget. And it was like, what? How? Why? <sighs> Big companies. Um, and I was like, oh my God, you know, because it's like, if you'd gone in and said that at a games company, like you would have been out the same day, you know, I mean, it's oh, like, yeah. I, I, you know, I talked to people about how, you know, like and you're probably considering shutting up, especially on the smaller Australian scale, you potentially even eyeing shutting up shop. If that's, if that's how things are playing out, well, we're done. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, back in the days of, uh, you know, when I was working at THQ and Blitz and we were doing like retail games before digital was a thing. It's like, if you didn't hit your date for the, the Toys R Us big book in the States, so if you if you if your game was going in the Toys R Us big book, which was essentially the Bible for Christmas shopping for kids, you know, for parents and kids, if your game was going in that, if you didn't hit your release date, you actually got fined by Toys R Us. Ooh. So yeah, right, eh? you absolutely needed to hit your, your release date, otherwise it was hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines, I seem to remember. So, you know, it was like you hit your targets, you hit your dates. That was the you know, I wonder the why that... Toys R Us fell <laughs> fell apart at one point. Might be something in that. Yeah. Burnings and bridges. Yeah, but um, yeah, so like going somewhere where, you know, it, it felt, eh, nobody, nobody was too concerned about it. It was just expected. And it was like, oh my God. But it was, I mean, it was very interesting to work with different people. Um, you know, there was there were things that I could take in there from having worked in games um, about, you know, just project tracking and sort of man management, I guess, person management, uh, people management, um, that they didn't necessarily have. Um, and then I, I learned a lot. I, it's, it's been a very, very long time since I did anything like with chemistry uh, or, or what have you. And it's like, oh, I learned a lot about that. Delving into the sciences. And electronics. Yeah. And so there, there was a lot that, I, um, you know, I enjoyed about it. Um, but, you know, so it was about two years there and I'm like, yeah. I need to get back back into games. Yeah. Well, I mean, the company had laid off a bunch of people. Um, they'd had a, a big downsizing and like I'd survived it. Um, but it was like, it didn't feel like it was going on the right trajectory. And so, yeah, then I, I saw, um, you know, George Fiddler, who I'd uh, spoken to years and years ago and who actually, you know, wanted to employ me at, um, uh, at sort of Sega Creative Assembly, um, post that, you know, they were looking for somebody and I just messaged him on LinkedIn and went, would you be interested in having a chat? And he's like, yep, when can you get here? And so, yeah, so that was back into games and for the first time into free to play, which is um, a very different experience. Very different compared to what you've been doing before. Absolutely. Well, whole- what was it like for you? Um, like just to, to get your head around I guess that concept yeah look it was um, it, it was it was a big culture shock you know so I remember I started I think um, and I, everything somehow everything tonight seemed to have centred around uh, my, my wedding anniversary but I actually started on my wedding anniversary uh, my wife oh, right. was away she was working away so again we weren't together um, so I started on my wedding anniversary at so the beginning of December and it's like okay so there's like two three weeks I can kind of I can see see how things work and then like really start work in the new year. So it'll be a nice easy start. Anything but it was so like okay. Baptism of fire. 
it was like, yeah, so we needed to get a build for sort of friends and family to do kind of like a soft launch, like in two weeks or something. It was like, what? So it was, and I didn't know, I didn't know what the game was. I was starting day one. I hadn't seen the game. It was software, as, you know, games as a service. Uh, it was, at the time, it was a Facebook game, so it was in a browser with Flash. Um, so there was the Flash client, and then there was servers on the back end. And so it was like nothing I'd worked with. Um, but it was really very, very solid um, team behind it. And again, I learned loads and loads about how all that worked, about, you know, um, you know, uh, server authoritative gaming uh, and just, you know, the whole free-to-play cycle and, and the funnel and uh, t- you know, tutorials and retention and, you know, all of that. Um, but it was, yeah, it was probably the hardest three weeks of my yeah, life just working to start in that, yeah. Um, and then obviously we were dealing, once again, dealing with a, you know, Californian parent company and, you know, lots of, you know, lots of Skypes first thing in the morning um, and, you know, because it's free to play, there's obviously a very, very big focus on stats. Um, so it was, yeah, it was very, very interesting. And, you know, like nothing I'd done before. And, and I've got to say that I didn't understand the, you know, the whole free to play model. You know, one of the founders, Paul Priest, uh, sort of explained it and said, look, you know, so it's like, you know, you're not, the, the people who play it, the players, they're not buying nothing. It's like their train set. You know, you consider if you have a model train set, you buy all these trains. This is that, but it's digital. You know, so all the things that were their spaceships they were buying, all the upgrades to their base, you know, all that sort of stuff they were doing in Vega Conflict, you know, um, they're like, that's that's what it's about. And it's like, uh, okay. Because I mean, I think, you know, my previous sort of thought about free to play was, you know, something more single player, something Candy Crush like. Yeah. You know, where Which, you... to be fair, you know, an easy, easy assumption to make at yeah. that point in time with it being the, the big boom thing. And I guess in a lot of ways, it's still right up there near the yeah, yeah. tippy top anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so that was. Uh, loads and loads to, to sort of, to learn there and it was it was really interesting and it was uh, again because we were bringing this game from nothing to launch um, again it felt really really pioneering in terms of what we were doing and especially because we were doing things quite differently to how the American teams had done it so you know um, Artem uh, who had come from Sega uh, with George uh, the technical director he was adamant that they weren't going to take anything from the previous games and they wanted to build it all from the ground up and uh, absolutely the right decision because we, you know, the security was there, all the, um, all the stuff around making sure the game wasn't getting defrauded, anti-cheating, all of that stuff was there from day one. Um, so yeah, that helps absolutely, especially with something like free to play. Yeah. Well, there's it's yeah, if if not done right, that thing could be really easily exploited and absolutely. broken wide open. Yeah, yeah. So it was the first game that Kickstarter had done that was fully server authoritative. So, you know. We, I remember when the, when the game yep. launched and uh, obviously we were looking at all the logs of payments and all the stuff that got rejected and you know there was certain nationalities would basically they would try to scam the game and yeah, I, I remember I think the first sort of day there's something like $130,000 worth of fraudulent transactions were blocked or something which is just crazy wow that's huge yeah I mean it's not like they would have made one hundred and thirty, but they would have had 130 grand's worth of in-game items and what have you um so yeah, it was like it was kind of good. I think you know, especially for for Artem to be able to go to the states and go see it was it was worth the effort. Look, we're not having these problems. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah but oh. I, I guess did it make you appreciate? I guess the the more traditional industry in some ways when you are then following Kicks Eye, Prideful Sloth was the next uh, yeah. party that you worked with. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things, obviously, uh, in the time since I left THQ, um, digital had become more of a thing. And so also the idea of, like, you didn't finish the game when you did the Gold Master, which is what we used to, to be honest, we used to enjoy. It's like you'd master a game, you'd ship it, and you would literally never, you'd never have to see it again. And it's like those days are long gone now, even with retail. It's like, you know, there's a day one patch um, because you can. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, so, I mean, obviously something like uh, with, with Vega Conflict, it's like over the sort of four years or whatever it was there, we did, I can't remember how many updates, loads. At one point, we were doing them weekly, you know, and that's a lot. Um, so the game evolved hugely, and it's still going today. Um, but then, you know, anything that you do now, your initial release isn't it. And so coming back when there's, I... There's more. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, when I when I left Kickstarter, I was kind of looking around for sort of things to do and ended up... Um, you know, I sort of spoke to all the local developers and was like, well, look, you know, who needs some help and what can I do? Um, and John, actually, so Cheryl, Joel and John, who uh, run Prideful Sloth, John had worked at, at Kickside and he'd left to, to go and do uh, Prideful Sloth. Uh, and so we kept in touch. And so, yeah, so I ended up sort of going and helping them on the sort of project management side and the commercial side um, before the game was uh, released. Did you know much about Yonder at that point? Or was no, it not, the, not the at people all. that you were going no, to work it, it with was, that was uh, kind of the appealing part? Well, I mean, it was. I mean, I got to obviously sort of saw the game um, and was like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. You know, there's something there. It was, um, it felt, you know, whilst it wasn't a license or anything, it didn't feel a million miles away from the kind of the tone of the stuff that I'd, you know, done with licensed characters. Um, and, you know, they had a plan, they knew what they wanted to do with it, and it was really about, okay, well, they need to finish it. And then, you know, I was looking, I helped them out with, you know, on that side of it, basically helped them get them across the line and, and sort of ship it. But then also, you know, I was talking to uh, to publishers, so we actually took it. It was published independently, like digitally, but then we managed to um, take it to retail, which as an indie game was kind of cool. So, yeah, it, you know, getting to, you know, uh, getting the It's a massive success in Japan as well. It did really well in Japan, yeah. So, you know, I took it out to... Um, I wasn't supposed to go and do the, the, the Korean and Japanese shows, but... Um, there was an update and everybody was busy and it's like oh could you just I'll just jump on a plane pretty much so yeah so I went out to uh, Busan to do the uh, to do Big Fest um, and up until that point my only knowledge of Busan uh, was the movie Train to Busan which yeah, okay. um, is about zombies on a train <laughs> so I'm like oh, so okay. far cry from what we're actually talking about here. yeah but it's like that was my knowledge of the place and you know the, the organisers of the show were like oh you know are you going to fly into Busan or are you gonna, if you fly to Seoul you can get the train to Busan and I'm like yeah, I don't think I'll get the train thanks so no thanks um, so yeah much. so you know it went down the game Yonder went down very well in the Asian market so you know it went really well um, took out the grand prize at, at Big Fest and then at Tokyo Game Show as well and you know so we would by that point we were sort of talking to publishers in Korea and Japan about getting distributed there um, and then you know that led towards the getting that you know we were obviously going to do a Switch version um, and that went yeah, very well in, in Japan. Um, yeah. Uh, and, you know, went, went pretty well at, uh, at retail um, elsewhere as well. And that, that was a fun thing. It's something that, you know, I think a lot of developers, you know, these days don't get to go into JB or EB and actually see and their, see game, on their the shelf, game on the shelf. You know, whereas it's, it's what we always used to do, you know, even with the kids' titles with SpongeBob or what have you, but it's like less and less. So it was genuinely an exciting thing when, you know, leading up to its release and it was on the Coming Soon shelf and we were all taking pictures and sending it to each other and it was, yeah, it was it was it was kind of cool. Staff wondering why you're standing there taking a selfie with an empty game box. Yeah, That's pretty much. Thing. And then when you're in and you're sort of rearranging it on the shelf and making it more prominent after release, you know. Um, yeah, 
and only for them to get the shits with you because you're rearranging their established yeah. thing that's linked yeah. in with business deals and all that yeah. sort of stuff. So yeah, lots yeah. of excitement there. Absolutely. Yeah. The next chapter, the I guess that still current, I suppose at yes. this point is a gameconsulting.com.au. Mm. Your your work these days, where you've been yeah. doing a lot of consultancy with developers and publishers, big and small. Yeah. Um, and what have been some of the differences there in terms of how you're presenting your knowledge to various developers versus what you're presenting to publishers and you know toggling between, I guess, those two different modes and perspectives? It's funny. Um, so when I was at uh, Prideful Sloth, there was one time um, they... Because I was, you know, looking at all the kind of commercial stuff, the financial stuff, uh, and obviously the, you know, the rest of the team were very, very focused on getting the game finished and, and what have yeah. you. Um, and so I ended up, and I can't remember who gave me the nickname, but I ended up with the nickname Business Dad. Um, and, and actually, they bought me some socks and a bottle of whiskey. Did you take to cool. that well, or was I was that... I was fine with it? I'm like, sure, <laughs> sure. Um, so you know, uh, if anything, uh, it's kind of um, so. I kind of finished with Prideful Sloth and helped them find their basically get the next project signed. Uh, and I was like, okay, I'm going to do something else now. You know, just. You know, it been uh, a few years and it was all cool. And it was like, do I want to spend another two and a half, three years or do I want to try doing something different? And it's like, okay, I'll try something different. And I didn't really have an idea. And actually, um, one of the first people, like when I sort of left and said, oh, look, you know, who knows what I'm going to do? Uh, so um, Nick from Modern Storyteller got in touch. Uh, oh, yeah. Because he'd, uh, like, we, we chatted at uh, the Japan party at GDC the, the year before and, you know, um, he was sort of picking my brain about a few things and he's like oh oh, are you available to hire now and I'm like I guess so and so that's kind of really what started with Nick looking for some help with the Forgotten City and pitching and so it's ended up you know there's a few things that I do I mean I do a lot of work with developers uh, pitching um, so basically helping them prepare pitches to get publishing deals or industry grants or whatever it is or even and like I mean, there's a few there's a few titles that I've got listed here. Yeah. So the likes of Speaking Simulator and Fledgling yeah. Heroes, which is a yeah, personal yeah. favourite of mine. I love Fledgling Heroes. Oh, uh, Windbound, another fantastic title as well. There's a, there's a few really cool games that you've been associated with there. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, Fledgling Heroes uh, had already been on arcade, and I was helping them bring it to Switch and then help them yeah. take it to, to Japan. Um, Speaking Simulator. I mean, it, it's funny we joke about that um, a bit because I, I I got the credit. Again, it leads on from business dad, but I think I got um, adult supervision was my uh, my credit oh, for speaking yeah, simulator. Right. <laughs> um, so you know, sometimes it's you know I've ended up you know some developers are more experienced than others. Like so, there are some developers I work with uh, who are quite green and they kind of need uh, a bit of a reality check. They need yeah. uh, coaching, I guess you might say. And so there's, there's a bit of that that I do with some developers, uh, and there are other developers. So the likes of Five Lives, who you know, obviously I came in sort of um, to help them get Windbound to Alpha and then ship. Um, and I've known those guys for a long time. And they were just like, they're great developers and they just didn't want to have to manage. You know, so yeah, it, was, it, was, it was sort of helping them manage their publisher, the third parties, localization, you know, doing biz dev for what they're doing next and this, that and the other. So it was kind of... Allow them to focus on the product. Exactly, yeah. So it, it's sort of, it's been quite a different thing, the stuff that I've been doing with them, Dan, you know, you look at say you know affable with speaking simulator not as experienced and so it was a bit more you know guiding them um, yeah. whereas you know uh, and then you know with some of the publishers sort of helping uh, some japanese publishers find products um, helping some developers take their games to japan and what have you um, and then you know been doing some work for screen agencies as well so that's been kind of fun so i've been doing a bit of ongoing work with screen queensland um, and then last year uh, with 
South Australia Film Corporation. Um, did it again, coming back to the pitching, but did a two-day uh, pitching workshop over Zoom. So um, eight hours in front of a webcam. Ooh. Then two weeks later, eight hours in front of a webcam, giving people feedback on their pitches. And then actually a, a re- earlier in the year, did the same thing for Code New Zealand uh, in Dunedin. So I've, you know, I've got some bits and pieces going on with that. Um, really adapted to the remote work thing, that's for sure. Well, we all had to, didn't we? Yeah. Um, you know, it didn't. The funny thing is, it's like the whole lockdown. I think I actually ended up getting more work um, and more approaches for work because I think it proved to people that actually you can work with people anywhere. You know, yeah. I think for, for the longest, we all wanted to be in the office with the person we were working with, and I completely understand it. And there's there's still a lot I like about being in an office with somebody. Oh, human interaction. Yeah, but I mean, I think it sort of proved that, like, oh, you know, we can deal with this random bloke in Australia who seems to know what he's talking about, and it doesn't matter that we're in London or we're in you know LA or Canada or whatever it is so you know from that side it, it's, it's actually been pretty good for me I can't really complain oh, that's fantastic yeah. and I'm sure really exciting in the sense that because you are working with whether they're developers or publishers at varying different scales and levels and levels of experience means you're not necessarily doing the same thing over I mean you spoke about you know do I go through that two and a half yeah. to three year sort of loop again yeah. I guess you're bouncing in and out at various different points of development or whatever and or, or just focusing on different particular aspects of their work keeps things varied and exciting for you as well i'd imagine absolutely yeah so it's one of the things that i've uh, i have enjoyed is that there's there's been you know obviously i've got some quiet times um but i'm not that's that's absolutely fine and, and when you know working on you know something like windbound you know there was a lot to do uh, for a long time uh and then you know there's quite a time so i'm working on pitches with some some people now and helping coaching them on a few things um, and yeah the variety is nice knowing that you know I've got different styles of project and I think the other thing is <clears throat> excuse me I know I tend to get quite into and quite consumed by my work yep. if it's full time whereas <clears throat> if I'm doing lots of little things there's sort of less opportunity for it to completely take over my life you know the whole yeah, work-life the, balance thing so more it, defined it, timelines on everything i guess yeah it's been good for that so you know if like i'm doing two days a week for somebody it's two days and it's like that's what it is and i can cut it off for two days and you know yeah so it's been good the variety of different things I, I've, I've really enjoyed it yeah that's great to hear and i think everyone listening just keep your eyes out because i'm sure there'll be more that you'll be uh, publicly associated with soon enough i'm sure yeah, yeah, there's always things that you can't talk about. <laughs> yeah, I can appreciate that. I'm, I'm not going to push yeah. and probe in that in that particular direction, but look forward to it, I'm sure. Cool. So as we start to wind things up, just cycling, I guess, really into you, and is there anyone out there that you've worked with or you look at from afar that really inspires you and in the way you go about your work? Um, oh God, that's a, that's a difficult question. I think, you know, sometimes... There are... I guess your work is really varied in terms of what, the jobs actually entailed over the journey as well so i guess it's not necessarily an easy one to question uh, to answer sorry yeah i mean i think that probably uh the people that i've enjoyed working with the most are probably the people who've allowed me to make my own mistakes if you like yep. rather than you know and then you know not lord it over me when i have and goodness knows i have um you know and then they've I'll, been there to guide and mentor afterwards yeah that's right that's right and because i think a lot of you know particularly you know, one of the themes we've talked about is that learning by doing, you know, yeah. and that's, that's been a lot of, you know, yes, you know, I've got a computer science degree, but it didn't really teach me anything about games. Um, you know, so that was all sort of self-taught. So, you know, doing that and, and going... Bluffing in, your way in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the bluffing <laughs> continues, believe me. Uh, nothing, nothing has changed there, just got less hair and it's greyer. But, um, yeah, you know, so working with those kinds of people, I mean, um, 
oh, it's, it's you know there are people I think who've, who've done phenomenal jobs there's a guy um, who I employed back at Blitz he came to us on a uh, it was a university placement so he was like 19 and he came from uh, he came down from Scotland very thick accent very shy guy but technically absolutely brilliant um, and he loved working with us and he put in so much effort and we actually got in trouble with his university because he decided to leave leave his university course and work with us full time and we're like ah oh, we didn't nah this wasn't what we wanted to happen but he was just such a smart guy quiet guy smart guy went off and did fantastic things for Ubisoft um, I haven't seen him in years he's somewhere in, in the Ubisoft group but just you know, just had to admire that it's what he wanted to do, and he just absolutely, you know, put his mind to it and just did great stuff. Um, oh, that's fantastic! But, you know, I think you know one of the things that's uh, it's nice seeing people progress. So, like, sort of seeing people that I worked with, you know, who I might have brought in, or if somebody else brought in, and I've worked with them at a point, and then you see them go off and do something, and go, wow, that's great. You know, actually, sort of taking a bit of, uh, I guess, some vicarious pleasure in seeing other people do well. I mean, we you threw around the whole business dad thing mm-hmm. sort of thing mm-hmm. before, but maybe subtract the business part of it there's the <laughs> almost parental part where you're kind of seeing yeah, yeah. Your tw- a child quote unquote kind of yeah. just grow and flourish and develop in, in what they're doing yeah I had a, a client uh, last week tell me that I was their game dev uncle so <laughs> yeah I, I think maybe I was close to the mark there <laughs> yeah possibly possibly <laughs> so a couple of little curly ones as we wrap things up sure if you could be credited for credited sorry mm. for anything any game that's ever come out in any capacity whether again it's oh. uh business dad or yeah right or or any capacity you might like what game would it be wow Hell, it, it can just be special thanks if you want like yeah, it doesn't no, really no, matter sure, what the capacity sure. needs to be no that is oh wow that's... but what would you have loved to have been involved with that's rough I don't... see the thing is like there's a favorite child component to this yeah, and there's a reason I don't have children. But um, yeah, look, I think because the interesting thing is there's lots of, of AAA games that I enjoy, but I'm not sure I'd want to have worked on them. You know? Okay, fair So, enough. you know, the likes of, um, you know, the Uncharted series, you know, absolutely uh, very much enjoy those. But we do hear stories. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, oh, I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't want to be the, you know, the tiny cog in the, in the big machine, I don't think. Not, not anymore. Maybe when I was younger, I would have enjoyed it. So, you know, that, that sort of thing for sure. I mean, I think as well, I mean, you know, my involvement wasn't huge, but, um, you know, the blob is still absolutely a highlight just in terms of what the Blue Tongue team made it. You know, yeah. from, you know, obviously the, the source material that, you know, Houston and, and the students had, but then, you know, taking that to, to what it was, it's like, a, a, I hope there's there's more for, for the blob in the future. I think that would be very cool. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, as a fan of that franchise, I would very much like to see see more of it i know i know my wife's a big fan as well um and she doesn't like she plays games a little bit but that's one that when we first met she spoke about that yeah right in in quite quite some degree i'm like oh okay let's i'll lock that one in the vault so yeah yeah, let's i I think we can coax blue tongue into making a third one of those or (laughs) someone into making a third one of those that'd be fantastic if i wanted to impress my wife it would be to be involved in the lego games so you know oh yeah okay that's fair well who knows not too late (laughs) never too late if you could uh, wipe your memory of any game and get to replay it for the first time, what would it be? What Ooh, game would it be? Gosh. Wow, that is a curly question. 
It is a curly one because, I mean, that can be based on one single moment within a title. It could be the culmination of the entire thing, some of its parts, whatever perspective you want to take. There's yeah. a few different ways you can look at this. Yeah, wow. Really? It's the last of the curly ones, by the way. Yeah, okay, that's, that's good. That's good. Wow. Oh, okay, what a kill. Just like to play it again for the first time. Um, <laughs> I feel like I should go for something really obscure here. Oh, you know, please. But, uh, I think The Secret of Monkey Island, actually. Oh, that's, that's not that obscure. That's a we, fantastic choice, though. We used to we used to play that at lunchtime at Blitz Games when I was working there over the, for the first time. Sorry, at um, Big Red Software, the first summer I was there. And it was just the humour in it, the, the animations and everything. It was like, it was the game that you wanted to make, I guess. And, and I like, guess once oh, you know wow. the answers to the various puzzles, yeah. maybe, I mean, it's like uh, a, the magic's still there, but it detracts from it somewhat. Yeah, you never get the first impression again. You know, uh, you know the jokes you, you've heard them the first time you, you know, and the first time you work out the monkey wrench and stuff like that. It's like, well, you're not getting that again. So yeah, yeah, I think that that one probably. Fantastic choice, John. I really appreciate you coming on the show, sharing these many stories and experiences and I mean we've spoken about what you're doing with game consultancy these days mm. there's a lot more to come I'm sure so I look forward to seeing as we said before what your name is attached uh, to what you'll be helping uh, bolster and improve and guide over the coming years it's really going to be fascinating so thank you very very much for coming on the show oh thanks for having me it's been a pleasure uh, if uh, listeners are looking to get in touch or learn more about what you're up to where would they be best to go whether that's social media or whatever Oh, look, so, you know, my, my site is gameconsulting.com.au uh, and uh, at gameconsulting on Twitter, I guess. Go for it. As I said, thank you very, very much for coming on the show. No I, problem. I loved every moment of that. And I mentioned before we started recording, I mentioned at the beginning of the, the show itself <laughs> that like, I had an absolute blast combing through everything that you've been up to. And, you know, I mean it quite genuinely. Like, I'm really excited to see what's to come because with all those credits with all those various different stories I think there's still some really fascinating ones to come so I can't wait to see what's in store thanks very much appreciate it and listeners as always thank you much for listening I'll see you next time That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share it with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to get, help me get in touch with them. Until our next episode, however, it's been John's story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.